Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, For hundreds of years, Christians have this greeting that goes back and forth where I say, He is risen, and you say, He is risen indeed. And this this historic greeting comes out of a Bible verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20 says that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most robust passages about the resurrection in all of Scripture. And Paul has this phrase in there, this indicative term. It says, indeed he has been raised. It is the truth. It's, it's fully trustable and reliable that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's the case, then everything changes. Sam Alberry in his book says, Many Christians, while believing in the resurrection and rehearsing that belief every Easter Sunday, then effectively stick it back in a drawer for the rest of the year because they are at a loss to know what to do with it. And so my hope is not just for us to rehearse something that we are expecting every year, but to really ask ourselves the question, What does this mean every day of our entire life and into eternity that Christ is risen indeed? So three things that this means, that this this confidence gives us is number one is a historical wonder. Secondly, a heavenly hope. And lastly, a holy love. We're going to work through these three different themes that we see come from this verse in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. The first one is that for Paul to say that this happened indeed means that this is a fact. It's not just some sort of myth or allegory. It's not some sort of um, legend that kind of shapes our ethics and moralities. This is something that actually happened. And according to historians, it is one of the most reliable historical events to have ever happened. And so, Um, And the reason why this is important to revisit is because of what psychologists call is a hindsight bias. And a hindsight bias is this. It's a psychological term for when you know the outcome of the event, you assume the ending as if it was always inevitable. But that wasn't the case. When you read the accounts of the resurrection, what you find is they're as surprised, they're as shocked about someone rising from the dead if it would have happened today. Regardless of their scientific advancement, people just didn't rise from the dead. And so we're going to be looking at some of the the historical wonder of this event. I want to look at three things. The evidence of an empty tomb, the evidence of the prophetic texts, and the evidence of the eyewitness. In John 20, verse 1, it says that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And we're introduced to the very first evangelist, Mary Magdalene, who goes and, dis- and explains, this is, the tomb is empty and she's distraught and she's 
perplexed and she's running to tell Peter and John and the other disciples what she's seen. And the empty tomb is, is the hinge point of all of our Christian faith. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ did not raise, then our faith is futile. There's so a couple of things to keep in mind when you're looking at this event, because we all have to wrestle with the fact, did this actually happen? So some things to consider. Number one is that Jesus was not the only person claiming to be a Messiah in that day. A matter of fact, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, gives us the name of over a dozen um, other Messiahs who were coming up in that day. Hezekiah, Judas Thaddeus, Simon of Perea, Athrangus the Shepherd, Judas the Galilean, Thaddeus, James and Simeon, the, all, the, and just list all of these different um, historical figures that were claiming to be the Messiah. But here's the interesting thing with all of those Messiahs. All of them died, and after they died, their followers, no matter how big or how small, dispersed. It was over. Which brings up a very interesting point. That if after every Messiah's death, the uprising and the insurrection and the promise of a new kingdom diminished, why was it the fact that after Jesus' death, his disciples didn't follow the pattern of every other Messiah figure in that day? And the... And the and reasonably, we have to come to the conclusion that something happened after he died. There's something different about this Messiah than every other Messiah in all of human history that didn't cause a dispersion of his followers, but caused an emboldening of his followers, a growth in his followership. The second thing that we have to consider is kind of the cultural and religious hurdle that was presented. Not only, like in our scientific mind, we're just like, resurrections don't happen. But not only did they have that kind of intellectual hurdle, they had a religious hurdle because Jewish people did not believe that people raised from the dead until the last day. And so if, if the disciples were trying to make up the resurrection, it would have never occurred to them in their Jewish imagination, in their Jewish mindset, that this was even possible. And T. Wright says it like this, the Jewish worldview made it inconceivable that a single person could be resurrected in the middle of history. It would have neither occurred to Jesus' disciples to make up such an idea, nor to think they could get other Jews to believe it if they did. I would have required some extraordinary, impossible to deny, powerful evidence to get first century Jews to overcome all they had been taught and believe that Jesus was the resurrected Son of God. Another interesting part is that the testimony of the empty tomb came from women. And many of you guys know, but in that day, women's testimonies wouldn't hold up in court. And so there would be no reason if the disciples were making up the resurrection that they would have had women be the first eyewitnesses unless that's just actually what happened. And one other thing I want to bring up when it comes to the evidence of the empty tomb is that there is a failure for any other explanation to come up in the past 2,000 years for the rise of the early church, other than the fact that Jesus had to have been raised from the dead. There's no other reason 
for that life-changing movement, that world-changing movement to have come as rapidly as it did, to have its effect as long as it has, unless there's some other reason presented, and there's been none. Tim Keller in his recent book, Hope in Times of Fear, says this, if you ask historians to answer the question, what explanation do you have for the rapid development of this new view of resurrection and for the explosive growth of the church? They must answer historically. Even if they hold a philosophical presupposition that disbelieves in miracles, they still have to find some alternative explanation that is historically possible. And as Wright argues, that is not all at all easy. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. And that's just the evidence of the empty tomb. Another really fascinating thing is the evidence of the prophetic text. On the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, says that now the same day two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked alongside of them, but they, kept but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And I love Jesus' response, what things, he asked. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Verse 25. Did not Messiah, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, all of the books of the Bible before Jesus comes, there are over 360 prophecies speaking of this messianic salvific figure that would come. And that's, that's a lot of prophecies for one man to fulfill to the point where it would almost be impossible. Just to illustrate this, a professor at Westmont College began to undertake the, the strenuous job to figure out what would be the mathematical uh, equation to figure out the likelihood of, of someone filling just eight of these prophecies. So he took a dozen of his classes, over 600 of his students, and he gave them each one of the prophetic prophecies and had them analyze it and come up with a conservative estimate of the likelihood of one person fulfilling just one of those prophecies. And they did it and they ended up condensing it to eight. After they took all of that ev <clears throat> evidence, they submitted its figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. <clears throat> and they looked at all of the evidence that they had, all of the equations they had made, and then the professor made it even more conservative. And so after all of that, what he found is for one person to fulfill just eight, not 360, just eight of the Messianic prophecies at that time frame, to be born where he was born, to fulfill what he fulfilled, is a chance in one in 10 to the 17th power. Now just to give you an idea of how unlikely that is, if you were to take a silver dollar and you were to cover the face of the entire state of Texas 
and you were to fill that up to two feet. And so you're up, to your, you're up to your knees in silver dollars in the entire state of Texas. And then you take one of them and you mark an X on it. And you mix up all the silver dollars and you throw it somewhere in the middle of Texas. The likelihood of walking through that state blindfolded and picking up the exact same one, you are more likely to do that than for one person to be able to fulfill just eight of the prophecies and there's 360 of them. I mean, this is astronomically world-changing. To think that Jesus is the one who claims and fulfills every single one of them. Which leads us to the last bit of evidence. And that's the evidence of the eyewitness. It says, Now Thomas, in John 20, verse 24, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said, We've seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands in his sides, I will not believe. But what's amazing is although Jesus had appeared to the other ten, he didn't only appear to them, he appeared to dozens of others, which would have made the, the accounting of coming up with some sort of fictitious story of the resurrection almost impossible. Peter Williams, in his book, Can We Trust the Gospel, gives um, an account of all the times and places and ways Jesus showed up in the resurrection. It says he was appearing in Judah and in Galilee, in town and the countryside, indoors and outdoors morning and evening, prior appointment and without a prior appointment, close, distance, on a hill, by a lake, to a group of men and groups of women, individuals and groups up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. It's easy to say that Jesus did not just appear one time to a select few, he appeared multiple times for many days to hundreds of people who were still alive when these Gospels were being written. And you might be sitting here and you might be like, that's interesting, it's compelling. So what? So what if He rose indeed? What are the ramifications for my life? Well, that very opening verse we read talks about that resurrection was not just something that happened, it's something that's given. We are given resurrection life, a heavenly hope. And the Greek word for hope is different than our English word. The biblical word, elpida, translated means a profound certainty. Why do we need a hope of heaven? Why do we need an eternal hope? Aren't we moved past that? Aren't we more rational and scientific to really believe in an afterlife. But one person who thinks that's an author named Yuval Noah Harari, Harari, who wrote a best-selling book called Homo Deus, where he says this, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well 
what needs need to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and what we usually, and we usually succeed in doing it. This New York Times best-selling book, praising modernity and the progress of humanity, was written in 2017. One thing we know in 2022 is that plague, war, and famine have not been reined in. Despite the advances in technology and in science, um, despite the humanitarian efforts, we are still in a world that is broken. I mean, just think about this. This best-selling book disclaiming we've conquered, we've reined in these things like war and famine and plague. We're coming out of two years that has said the exact opposite. We've never been more in need of an eternal hope than right now. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, that same chapter, later on, Paul says this, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then this saying that is written will come true. Listen to this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The resurrection points to the reality that there is a day coming and a reality that has already been spun into motion where we can say death has been swallowed up in victory. Easter, the resurrection, means that death is not the final word. The resurrection means that the hope of heaven is real, that we don't have to just live for this life and the 70, 80 years, if we're lucky that we have here, but we get to pour our lives into something that will never perish. One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, a few years back was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This week, the New York Times did an interview with him titled, How a Cancer Diagnosis makes Jesus' death and resurrection mean more. The columnist interviewing him said this, How has cancer and this encounter with your own mortality changed how you see your life and how you see death? And Keller answers with some incredibly sobering and profound and comforting words. I just want to read an excerpt from this interview from someone who's on the verge of entering into that heavenly hope as we approach Easter. He says, Holy Week gives you both death and resurrection. They don't make any sense apart. You can't have the joy of resurrection unless you've gone through a death, and a death without resurrection is just hopeless. Essentially, the death-resurrection motif or pattern if absolute, is as is absolutely at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life. And actually, everything in life is like that. With any kind of suffering, if I respond to it by looking to God in faith, suffering drives me like a nail deeper into God's love, which is what cancer has done for me. I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more. Because I look to Easter and say, because of this, I can face anything. 
In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. On an emotional level, we really do deny the fact that we're mortal and our time is limited. The day after my diagnosis, one of the words I put down in my journal was focus. What are the most important things for you to be spending your time doing? And I had not been focused. You realize that there's one sense in which if you believe in God, it's a mental abstraction. You believe with your head. I came to realize that the experiential side of my faith really needed to be strengthened or I wasn't going to be able to handle this. It's one thing to believe God loves you, another thing to actually feel His love. It's one thing to believe He's present with you, it's another to actually experience His presence. So the two things I wrote down in my journal, one was focused and the other one was know the Lord. You see, it's, it's not enough just to be intellectually convinced that the resurrection happened. And it's really not even enough to just hold on to the hope of heaven. You see, that the hope of heaven that we have because of the historical facts of the resurrection need to be experienced because of what we call a holy love, a transformational, experiential, experiential intimate invitation into the love of Jesus. And this is what I want to leave you with is although the, the evidence we've mounted up is really compelling, interestingly enough, the empty tomb, the prophetic fulfillment on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus showing up ready for his wounds to be touched did not convince Mary, the people on the road, or Thomas. But something else did. What convinced Mary? What convinced the people on the road to Emmaus? What convinced Thomas is shocking. It wasn't the airtight evidence that was before him. It was an intimate experience. Look at this. Mary, Mary's account, John 20, 11 says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What convinced Mary was not angels at the head and the foot of a bed. It was not an empty tomb with a stone rolled away. It was the moment when Jesus called her name and he's still doing it today. If you're watching this and you may have been considering, do you believe in a resurrected Christ? The point is not for you to weigh the evidence. The point is, can you hear him call your name? You look at the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And it wasn't all the prophetic fulfillment that he went over, which would have been amazing and stimulating. It says in verse, 20, in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
I find it so fascinating that what made these people recognize Jesus was not arguably the greatest lecture of all time. It was when he was at the table with them, breaking bread. It was communion that convinced them where their eyes were open. And look at Thomas. What's so fascinating is although Jesus shows up and says, here's my scars, touch them. Most theologians believe that he never actually did. Rather, when Jesus shows, shows up, one commentator says, it was the precise repetition of Thomas's words that made a deep impression on the man. Listen to what he says. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. See, for Thomas, he thought he wanted empirical evidence. But what convinced him was that Jesus had been with him all along. He'd been listening to him all along. And that's my prayer today. I mean, listen, I'm passionate, hopefully you can see it, about the beauty and the soundness of the resurrection. But what I'm more convinced of this year than anything is that you can't read enough books, hear enough sermons to convince you if you have never heard him call your name, if you've never felt him invite you to the table, if you've never realized he's listened to you. And my prayer, my deepest prayer, is that if you want to turn off this video or listen to worship and get into a quiet place, whether it's today, tomorrow, next month, or next year, is that there would come a time when you realize that this God who's been resurrected is still living and still pursuing your heart. He's not going to stop until you recognize him until you hear him call your name, until you see him breaking bread at your table, until you realize he's listened to your heart. It's in that moment that you realize what Jesus said in John chapter 11, that when Martha said, I know there will be a resurrection, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? If you've never made that decision and would like to do that, you want to just make space to say, Lord, I, I want to hear. I want to hear your, your voice call my name. And would you just take a moment to pray with me? That we would stop and we would let the Holy Spirit come and speak to us as the living God who loves us so much. To pray along with me, maybe even in your own words. Jesus, thank you that you not only died on the cross, Lord, you rose again. Lord, I thank you when you rose again that you didn't hold a press conference, you didn't go to the middle of Jerusalem, you showed yourself to many people, but you also showed yourselves to individuals. Father, you said the name of Mary. Lord, thank you so much that you although walk with us and engage us intellectually, Lord, you ultimately want to be at the table with us, breaking bread with us. And God, thank you that you're okay with our questions and our doubts, but Lord, that you want to remind us you've been here all along. So Jesus, we trust you. We want to give you our life, not just our, not just our 
agreement intellectually. We want to give you our hearts. Jesus, that you'd be Lord of our life. Would you forgive us of our sins? And would we forever cling on to the eternal hope that we have in you because of the holy love that you gave to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.